Welcome to Listening to the Giants. Welcome to the Listening to the Giants podcast. I'm your host, Dale Lewis. Before we begin our new book, let's spend a few minutes getting to know its author. He almost doesn't need introduction because if you say the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or just Spurgeon, in many evangelical churches, you will usually find at least a few people whose eyes light up with recognition. Spurgeon has been called the Prince of Preachers. Now, that's not only due to his popularity during his own time, but because Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of the shining lights of biblical Christianity, who, to borrow a phrase from Hebrews 11.4, though he is dead, he still speaks. Over 100 years after his death, the sermons, writings, and ministry of C.H. Spurgeon are referred to each Sunday in many pulpits throughout the world. Also, many Christians consider Spurgeon a wonderful source for biblical instruction, exhortation, and encouragement. Spurgeon was born in 1834 in England and was the first of 17 children. He was converted in January 1850 when he, due to a snowstorm, went into a primitive Methodist chapel. It was there, listening to a sermon that Spurgeon said was not very well done, that the Spirit of God opened his heart to respond to the gospel. His ministry started early, at the age of 16. He was soon called to a small Baptist church in Waterbeach, Cambridgeshire. It was while he was pastoring at this church that Spurgeon's first gospel tract was published in 1853. In 1854, Spurgeon became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, London. The Lord blessed his straightforward, plain, and authoritative teaching of the Scriptures. The congregation, which had been diminishing, grew exponentially. And in 1861, the church moved to its present location, now called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This building seated 5,000 and had standing room for 1,000 more. Spurgeon's impact went far beyond the sermons that he preached or the multitude of people that heard those sermons. He also had a very active practical ministry to those who were less fortunate. This is seen in the establishment and funding of houses for orphans, widows, and even a rescue society for women who were suffering from domestic abuse. The love of Christ was not only proclaimed from Spurgeon's pulpit and in his writings, but also in the ministries of mercy that he established and supported. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said about this servant of the Lord, but the very best way to get to know Spurgeon is to read at least one of the biographies that have been written about him. On the website of the Spurgeon Center for Biblical Preaching at Midwestern Seminary, there's a list of 12 biographies on Spurgeon. I'll include a link to that page in the show notes. Now, in the latter part of his life, Spurgeon suffered from numerous health problems. He died in 1892 near Nice, France, where he often went to recuperate. 
Our introduction to Spurgeon on listening to the Giants is his little book, Advice for Seekers. The notes on the Banner of Truth edition of this book says that in it, Spurgeon examined the, quote, many false ideas about God's way of salvation. These errors frequently prevent seekers coming to Jesus Christ and trusting Him wholly. This brief book is a goldmine of spiritual riches for seekers and for those who have already trusted in Christ. So, without any delay, let's begin listening to the Giants. Advice for Seekers by Charles Haddon Spurgeon Chapter 1 Do Not Try to Save Yourself If you think about it, God's value of heaven and yours are very different things. His salvation, when he set a price upon it, was to be brought to men only through the death of his Son. But you think that your good works can win the heaven which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, procured at the cost of his own blood. Do you dare to put your miserable life in comparison with the life of God's obedient Son, who gave himself even to death? Does it not strike you that you are insulting God? If there is a way to heaven by works, Why did he put his dear son to all that pain and grief? Why the scenes of Gethsemane? Why the tragedy on Golgotha, when the thing could have been done so easily another way? You insult the wisdom of God and the love of God. There is no attribute of God which self-righteousness does not impugn. It debases the eternal perfections which the blessed Savior magnified in order to exalt the pretensions of the creature which the Almighty spurns as vain and worthless. The traitor may barter his gold for your trinkets and glass beads, but if you give all that you have to God, it would be utterly rejected. He will bestow the milk and the honey of his mercy without money and without price. But if you come to him trying to bargain for it, it is all over for you. God will not give you choice provisions of his love that you do not know how to appreciate. The great things you propose to do, these works of yours, what comparison do they bear to the blessing which you hope to obtain? I suppose by these works you hope to obtain the favor of God and procure a place in heaven. What is it then you propose to offer? What could you bring to God? Would you bring him rivers of oil or the fat of ten thousand animals? Count up all the treasures that lie beneath the surface of the earth. If you brought them all, what would they be to God? If you could pile up all the gold reaching from the depths of the earth to the highest heavens, what would it be to him? How could all this enrich his coffers or buy your salvation? Can he be affected by anything you do to augment the sum of his happiness or to increase the glory of his kingdom? If he were hungry, he would not tell you. The cattle upon ten thousand hills are mine, he says, Psalm 50.10. Your goodness may please your fellow creatures, 
and your charity may make them grateful. But will God owe anything to you for your gifts, or be in debt to you for your influence? Absurd questions. When you have done everything, what will you be but a poor, unworthy, unprofitable servant? You will not have done what you ought, much less will there be any balance in your favor to make atonement for sin or to purchase for you an inheritance in the realms of light. You who are going to save yourselves by reforms and by earnest attempts and endeavors, let me ask you, if a man could not perform a certain work when his arm had strength in it, how will he be able to perform it when the bone is broken? When you were young and inexperienced, you had not yet fallen into evil habits and customs. Though there was depravity in your nature then, you had not become bound in the iron net of habit. Yet even then you went astray like a lost sheep and you followed after evil. What reason have you to suppose that you can suddenly change the bias of your heart, the course of your actions, and the tenor of your life, and become a new man? Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Jeremiah 13.23 Are there not ten thousand probabilities against one, that as you sinned before, you will sin still? You found the pathway of evil to be so attractive and fascinating that you were enticed into it, and you will still be enticed and drawn away from that path of integrity which you are now so firmly resolved to tread. The way to heaven by following the law given at Mount Sinai is very steep and narrow, and it takes only one wrong step for a man to be dashed to pieces. Stand at the foot and look up at it, if you dare. On its brow of stone there is the black cloud, out of which lightning leaps and the blast of the trumpet sounds loud and long. Do you not see Moses tremble? And will you dare to stand unabashed where Moses is fearful and afraid? Look upwards and give up the thought of climbing those steep crags, for no one has ever striven to clamber up there in the hope of salvation without finding destruction among the terrors of the way. Be wise. Give up that deceitful hope of salvation which your pride leads you to choose, and your presumption would soon cause you to rue. Suppose you could do some great thing, which I am sure you cannot, and it were possible that you could from now on be perfect and never sin again in thought, word, or deed. How would you be able to atone for all your past delinquencies? Shall I call for a resurrection in that graveyard of your memory? Let your sins rise up for a moment and pass in review before you. Ah, the sins of your youth may well frighten you those midnight sins, those midday sins, those sins against light and knowledge, those sins of body, those sins of soul. You have forgotten them, you say, but God has not. Look at the file. They are all placed there, all registered in God's day book, not one forgotten, all to be read against you in the day of the last judgment. How can future obedience make up for past transgression. 
The cliff has fallen, and though the wave washes up ten thousand times, it cannot set the cliff up again. The day is bright, but still there was a night, and the brightest day does not obliterate the fact that once it was dark. The self-righteous man knows that what he is doing cannot satisfy God, for it cannot satisfy himself. And though he may perhaps drug his conscience, there is generally enough left of the divine element within the man to make him feel and know that it is not satisfactory. To believe what God says, to do what God commands, to take that salvation which God provides, this is man's highest and best wisdom. Open your Bible. It is the pilgrim's guide in which God describes the glory yet to be revealed. This is the one message of the gospel. Believe and live. Trust in the incarnate Savior, whom God appointed to stand in the place of sinners. Trust in Him, and you shall be saved. Chapter 2 Despised Ones Seeking Jesus Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Luke 15.1 The most depraved and despised classes of society formed an inner ring of hearers around our Lord. I gather from this that he was a most approachable person, that he welcomed human confidence and was willing that men should commune with him. Eastern monarchs affected great seclusion and were likely to surround themselves with impassable barriers of state. It was very difficult for even their most loyal subjects to approach them. You remember the case of Esther, who, even though the monarch was her husband, still risked her life when she presented herself before King Ahasuerus. For there was a commandment that no one should come before the king unless they were called at peril of their lives. It is not so with the king of kings. His court is far more splendid. His person is far more worshipful. But you may draw near to him at all times without hindrance. He has set no men at arms around his palace gate. The door of his house of mercy is wide open. Over the lintel of his palace gate it is written, For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Matthew 7, 7. Even in our own day great men are not easily approached. There are so many back stairs to be climbed before you can reach the official who might help you, so many servants to be passed by, that it is very difficult to achieve your objective. The good men may be affable enough themselves, but they remind us of the old Russian fable of the hospitable householder in a village who was willing to help all the poor who came to his door but who kept so many big dogs loose in his yard that nobody was able to get to the threshold, and therefore his personal affability was of no use to anyone. It is not so with our Master. Though the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the greatest, and higher than the highest, he has been pleased to put out of the way everything which might keep the sinner 
from entering into his halls of gracious entertainment. From his lips we hear no threats against intrusion, but hundreds of invitations to enter into the dearest intimacy. Jesus is to be approached not every now and then, but at all times, and not by some favored few, but by all in whose hearts his Holy Spirit has kindled the desire to enter into his secret presence. The philosophical teachers of our Lord's day affected very great seclusion. They considered their teachings to be so profound that they were not to be uttered in the hearing of the common multitude. Far hence, ye profane, was their scornful motto. They stood on a lofty pillar of their fancied self-conceit and occasionally dropped down a stray thought upon the common herd beneath but they did not condescend to talk familiarly with them, considering it a dishonor to their philosophy to communicate it to the multitude. One of the greatest philosophers wrote over his door, Let no one who is ignorant of geometry enter here. But our Lord, compared with whom all wise men are fools, who is, in fact, the wisdom of God, never drove away a sinner because of his ignorance never refused a seeker because he was not yet initiated and had not taken the previous steps in the ladder of learning, and never permitted any thirsty spirit to be chased away from the crystal spring of divine truth. His every word was a diamond, and his lips dropped pearls. But he was never more at home than when speaking to the common people and teaching them about the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus is said to be the mediator between God and man. The office of mediator implies at once that he should be approachable. A mediator is not a mediator for one side. He must be close to both the parties between whom he mediates. If Jesus Christ is to be a perfect mediator between God and man, he must be able to come so near to God that God shall call him his fellow. And then he must approach man so closely that he shall not be ashamed to call him brother. This is precisely the case with our Lord. Think about this, you who are afraid of Jesus. He is a mediator, and as a mediator you may come to him. Jacob's ladder reached from the earth to heaven. But if he had cut away half a dozen of the bottom rungs, what use would the ladder have been? Who could climb up it to the hill of the Lord? Jesus Christ is the great conjunction between earth and heaven. But if he will not touch the poor mortal man who comes to him, then of what use is he to the sons of men? You do need a mediator between your soul and God. You must not think of coming to God without a mediator. But you do not want any mediator between yourselves and Christ. There is a necessary qualification for coming to God. You must not come to God without a perfect righteousness. But you may come to Jesus without any qualification and without any righteousness, because as mediator, He has in himself all the righteousness and fitness that you require and is ready to bestow them upon you.
you may come boldly to him right now. He waits to reconcile you to God by his blood. Another of Christ's offices is that of priest. The word priest has come to smell very badly nowadays, but it is a very sweet word as we find it in Holy Scripture. The word priest does not mean a gaudily dressed pretender who stands apart from other worshipers two steps higher than the rest of the people and professes to have power to dispense pardon for human sin. The true priest was truly the brother of all the people. There was no man in the whole camp of Israel so brotherly as Aaron. In fact, Aaron and the priests who succeeded him were so much the first points of contact with men on God's behalf that when a leper became too unclean for anybody else to approach, the last man who touched him was the priest. The house might be leprous, but the priest went into it. The man might be leprous, but he talked with him and examined him. And if afterwards that diseased man was cured, the first person who touched him must be a priest. Go, show thyself to the priest, was the command to every recovering leper. And until the priest had entered into fellowship with him and had given him a certificate of health, he could not be received into the Jewish camp. The priest was the true brother of all the people, chosen from among themselves, at all times to be approached, living in their midst, in the very center of the camp, ready to make intercession for the sinful and the sorrowful. Surely you will never doubt that if Jesus perfectly sustains the office of priest, as he certainly does, he must be the most approachable of beings, approachable by the poor sinner who has given himself up to despair, whom only a sacrifice can save, approachable by the foul harlot who is put outside the camp, whom only the blood can cleanse, approachable by the miserable thief who has to suffer the punishment of his crimes, whom only the great high priest can absolve. No other man may care to touch you, O trembling outcast, but Jesus will. You may be separated from all of mankind, justly and righteously, by your iniquities, but you are not separated from that great friend of sinners who at this very time is willing that publicans and sinners should draw near to him. As a third office, let me mention that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. But I do not see how he can be a Savior unless he can be approached by those who need to be saved. The priest and the Levite passed by the other side when the bleeding man lay on the road to Jericho. They were not saviors, therefore, and could not be. But he was the Savior who came where the man was, stooped over him, and took wine and oil and poured them into the gaping fissures of his wounds, and lifted him up with tender love and set him on his own beast and led him to the inn. He was the true Savior. And, O sinner, Jesus Christ will come just where you are, and your wounds of sin, even though they are putrid, will not drive him away from you.
His love shall overcome the nauseating offensiveness of your iniquity, for He is able and willing to save those who are like you. I might mention many other offices of Christ, but these three are sufficient. Certainly, if the Spirit blesses them, you will be led to see that Jesus is not hard to reach. Chapter 3 Seekers Touching Christ Some of us have ourselves been healed and therefore speak from assured experience. One man I know was secretly bowed down with despondency and depression of an unusual sort. His life had been spent at the very gates of hell because of a great sorrow of heart when he was a youth. Yet, in a moment, he was lifted into perfect peace by simply looking to him who was crucified upon the cross. That one form of healing is typical of others, for all other evils are overcome in the same manner. Jesus can heal you of your pride. He can deliver you from anger. He can cure you of sluggishness. He can purge you from envy, from lasciviousness, from malice, from gluttony, from every form of spiritual malady. And this he can do not by the torturing processes of penance or the exhausting labors of superstitious performance or the fiery ordeals of suffering, but the method is simply a word from him and a look from you, and all is done. You have only to trust in Jesus, and you are saved, made a new creature in an instant, set on your feet again to start a new life with a new power within you which shall conquer sin. We who bear this testimony claim to be believed. We are not liars. Not even for God's honor would we palm a pious fraud upon you. We have felt in ourselves the healing power of Christ. We have seen it and see it every day in the cases of others, in persons of all ranks and of all ages. All who have obeyed the word of Jesus have been made new creatures by his power. It is not one or two of us who bear this witness. There are hundreds of thousands who certify to the selfsame fact, and not ministers alone, but other professions and callings. There are tradesmen, there are gentlemen, there are working men, there are persons high and low who could say we too are witnesses that Christ can heal the soul. Here then is the marvel, that those who know this do not immediately throng to Christ to obtain the selfsame blessing. The behavior of those of whom we read in the Gospels was a rational one. They heard that Christ had healed many, and their practical logic was, Let us be healed too. Where is he? Let us reach him. Are there crowds about him? Let us jostle one another. Let us force our way into the mass until we touch him, and feel the healing virtue flowing from him. But now men seem to have taken leave of their reason. They know that the blessing is available, an eternal blessing not to be weighed with gold nor compared with diamonds. And yet, they turn their backs upon it. Selfishness usually attracts men to places where good things are to be gained. 
but here is the best thing of all, the possession of a sound soul, the gaining of a new nature which will enable a man to share eternal glory with the angels of light, which is freely available, yet man, being untrue to himself, does not even let a right-minded selfishness govern him, turns away from the fountain of all goodness, and goes into the wilderness to perish of eternal thirst. The gospel is preached to you, and God has not sent it with the intention that after you heard it, you should seek mercy and not find it. God does not tantalize. He does not mock the sins of men. He asks you to come to him. Repent and believe, and you shall be saved. If you come with a broken heart, trusting in Christ, there is no possibility that he will reject you. Otherwise, he would not have sent the gospel to you. There is nothing that so delights Jesus Christ as to save sinners. We never find that Jesus was in a huff because the people pressed about him to touch him. No, it gave him divine pleasure to give out his healing power. You who are in a trade are never happier than when business is brisk. And my Lord Jesus, who follows the trade of soul winning, is never happier than when his great business is moving on rapidly. What pleasure it gives a physician when at last he brings a person through a severe illness into health. I think that the medical profession must be one of the happiest engagements in the world when a man is skillful in it. Our Lord Jesus feels a most divine pleasure as he bends over a broken heart and binds it up. It is the very heaven of Christ's soul to be doing good to the sons of men. You misjudge him if you think he wants to be argued with and persuaded to have mercy. He gives it as freely as the sun pours out light, as the heavens drop with dew and as clouds yield their rain. It is his honor to bless sinners. It makes him a name and an everlasting sign that shall never be removed. I know that I too once belied him. When I felt my sins to be a great burden, I said within myself, I will go to Jesus, but perhaps he will reject me. I thought I had much to feel and to do to make myself ready for him, and I therefore did this and that. But the more I did, the worse I became. I was like the money who spent her money on physicians and did not get better, but rather grew worse. I fully understood that there was life in a look at Christ, that all I needed to do was simply to trust, to come as I was and put my case into his dear pierced hands and leave it there. Yet I still did not think it could be so. It seemed so simple. How could it be true? Was that all? I thought when I came to him, he would say to me, Sinner, you have rejected me so long. You have mocked me by saying prayers which you did not feel. You have been a hypocrite and joined with God's people in singing my praises when you did not praise me in your heart. I thought he would chide me and bring ten thousand sins to my remembrance. Instead of that, it took only a word, and it was all done. 
I looked to him and the burden was gone. I could have sung, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, with pardon in his right hand and acceptance in his left, with abundant blessings to the least deserving of the sons of men. Now I have to tell you that Jesus Christ still has the same ability to save as he had when he walked on earth. He ever lives to make intercession for sinners. He is therefore able to save those who come to him, and it is still true that he who comes will not be cast out. There has never been an instance of a man who trusted in Christ and perished, and there never shall be an instance. Do not delay in trusting Christ. Do not entertain a hope that it will ever be easier to trust Jesus than it is now. Do not think that you will ever be in a better state for coming to him than you are in now. The best state in all the world for washing is to be filthy. The best state in all the world to obtain help from a physician is to be terribly sick. The best state for asking for alms is to be a beggar. Do not try to patch up those rags, nor improve your character, nor to make yourself better before you come to Christ. Come in all your poverty and vileness, just as you are, and say to him, My Lord and my God, you have suffered as a man for all the sins of those who trust you. I trust you. Accept me. Give me peace and joy. And tell the world, I ask you, whether he accepts you or not. If he casts you away, you will be the very first. Then let us know about it. But if he receives you, you will be the only one among ten thousand who have been accepted. Then publish it so that our faith may be confirmed. Never be content with merely coming close to Christ. When there is a gracious season in a church and people are converted Many others rest satisfied because they have been in the congregation where works of mercy have been performed. It is dreadful to reflect that there are in our churches men and women who are perfectly satisfied with having spent Sunday in a place of worship. Now, suppose a man has leprosy, and he goes to the place where Jesus is. He sees the people thronging to get near, and he joins the press. He pushes on for a certain length of time and then returns home perfectly content because he has joined the crowd. The next day the great master is dispensing healing virtue right and left, and the same man joins the throng and once more elbows himself tolerably near to the Savior and then retires. Well, He says, I got into the crowd, I pressed and squeezed and made my way, and so I was in the way. Perhaps I might have got a blessing. Now that would be precisely similar to the condition of hundreds and thousands of people who go to a place of worship on Sunday. There is the gospel. They come to hear it. They come the next Sunday. There is the gospel again. They listen to it and they go their way each time. Fool, you say to the man with leprosy. Why, you did nothing. Getting into the crowd was nothing. 
If you did not touch the Lord who dispensed the healing, you lost all your time, and besides, you incurred responsibility because you got near to him, and yet, for not putting out your hand to touch him, you lost the opportunity. It is the same for you, good people, who go where Jesus Christ is faithfully preached. You come and go and come and go continually. And what fools you are, what gross fools, to get into the throng and to be satisfied with that and never touch Christ. Tell me of your church goings and your chapel goings. They are not a morsel of use to you unless you touch the Savior through them. I must caution you not to be content with touching those who are healed. There are many in the crowd who, having touched the Master, clapped their hands and said, Glory be to God! My withered arm is restored. My eyes are opened. My dropsy has vanished. My palsy is gone. One after another they praise God for his great wonders. And sometimes their friends who were sick would go away with them and say, What a mercy! Let us go home together. They would hear all about it and talk about it and tell it to others. But all the while, though they rejoiced in the good that was done to others and sympathized in it, they never touched Jesus for themselves. Noah's carpenters built the ark, but were all drowned. Oh, I beseech you, do not be satisfied with talking about revivals and hearing about conversions. Get an interest in them. Let nothing content any one of us but actual spiritual contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us never sleep or slumber until we have really looked to that great sacrifice which God has lifted up for the sins of men. Let us not think of Christ as another man's Savior, but be passionately in earnest till we get him for our own. A young man once said to me, I want to know what I must do to be saved. I reminded him of that verse, A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. He said, Sir, I cannot fall. Oh, I said, you do not understand me. I do not mean a fall which demands any strength in you. I mean a fall caused by the absence of all strength. It is to tumble down into Christ's arms because you cannot stand upright. Faint into the arms of Christ, that is faith. Just give up doing. Give up depending upon anything that you are or do or ever hope to be and depend upon the complete merits and finished work and the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you do this, you are saved. Anything of your own doing spoils it all. You must not have a jot or a tittle of your own. You must give up relying upon your prayers, your tears, your baptism, your repentance, and even your faith itself. Your reliance is to be on nothing but that which is in Jesus Christ. Those dear hands, those blessed feet, are ensigns of his love. Look to them. That bleeding, martyred, murdered person is the grand display of the heart of the ever-blessed God. Look to it. Look to the Savior's pangs, griefs, and groans, 
These are punishments for human sin. This is God's wrath, spending itself on Christ, instead of spending itself on the believer. Believe in Jesus, and it is certain that he suffered this for you. Trust in him to save you, and you are saved. That's our podcast for today. The next episode of Advice for Seekers by Charles Haddon Spurgeon will be posted in two weeks. If you subscribe to Listening to the Giants on your favorite podcast platform, you'll be notified when the next episode is posted. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast app. I'd like to invite you to visit the Listening to the Giants website at listeningtothegiants.com. On the website, you'll find links for subscribing through your favorite podcast platform, listen to past episodes, browse some helpful links, and even leave us a message. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time as we listen to the Giants.